Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 113. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekindoubt. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. They probably have something for everyone. I bet they don't have coloring books, though. Be hard to listen to a coloring book. <clears throat> Surrealist humor. Anyway, all right, let me take care of the Twitter shoutouts. Let's see, Andrew Fetterspiel, Fetterspiel, um, Trent Voigt, and I like his tagline, yes, I am a man with a cat. I, on the other hand, am a man with a small dog, a long-haired chihuahua, to be uh, precise. But it's funny, when I first saw the name Trent Voigt, it made me think of uh, the Seinfeld episode where Kramer gets bitten on the arm by uh, John Voigt. You Seinfeld fans will know what I'm talking about. Let's see who else. Ricardo Nestor, CDM at RW Surfer Girl. Um, it looks like Frederick Nietzsche may have followed me again. Yet a, th- a third Nietzsche. There's a bunch of people um, representing themselves as Frederick Nietzsche or Nietzsche on Twitter. And uh, I don't mind collecting all these Nietzsches. Uh, <laughs> I think back when I was in my. Um, early 20s, I was kind of on a, a Nietzsche kick for a while. I read um, The Birth of Tragedy, um, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Spake? I think it's Spake. Um, and I also read uh, a good deal of the uh, posthumous and voluminous uh, Will to Power. But it's funny, at the time, I had these like chronic headaches, and, and surprisingly, Nietzsche didn't help my headaches. I think his philosophy was kind of too uh, aggressive. Um, but I liked his spirit, and he uh, definitely wasn't afraid to uh, question Christianity. But I've gone beyond Nietzsche. Once in a while, I'll, I'll still see like a cool Nietzsche quote or something like that. Um, though it's very bizarre. You, you wouldn't think that there'd be videotape of Nietzsche out there. But if you go to YouTube, I believe you can actually find this old black and white, well, obviously black and white, uh, footage of like Nietzsche during his last days when he was, uh, when his mental and physical health was really uh, deteriorating. But it's kind of fascinating to look at if you're uh, familiar with Nietzsche. And for those of you out there who aren't familiar, um, Nietzsche is a famous 19th century um, German philosopher, technically of uh, Polish descent, I think, um, but he's known for having this really kind of strong, aggressive philosophy. Um, I think some people would probably classify him as a nihilist uh, in some sense, at least. He used to talk about the Ubermensch, the uh, Superman, and I think it's thought that that's uh, to some degree how the idea of Superman came to be in the uh, popular culture. Uh, I think Superman was the comic character was created by two Jewish kids, actually, um, two Jewish uh, American writers. Um, I, I'm wondering if they borrowed the idea, the concept of the, the Ubermensch from Nietzsche. I don't know. Um, but ironically, on the flip side, Nietzsche also uh, caught a lot of... Uh, slack posthumously for um, being a possible influence on the uh, Nazis. Um, 
because they had this really kind of strong, almost survival of the fittest type of uh, philosophy. But from what I know, I don't think Nietzsche would have approved of uh, the Third Reich, at least I hope not. I think he was too much of a uh, free spirit for that, perhaps. And everyone's probably familiar with one of his most famous quotes, uh, that which does not kill us makes us stronger or makes you stronger. Um, I remember one of my favorite movies, the original uh, Conan the Barbarian movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think, didn't that uh, start off with that Nietzsche quote, I think, if I remember correctly? But why am I talking about Nietzsche? I'm supposed to be doing the Twitter shout-outs. There's a slew of other recent Twitter followers, too, but it looks like they're all from Spanish-speaking uh, countries, and nevertheless, suspiciously, many of them look like they could be spam. Uh, so I'll hold off for now. Okay, so yet more shout-outs. I'd like to thank Russ Ray um, for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page, and he actually sent me a message uh, via Facebook, um, and it was much appreciated. And he writes, Just thought I'd say hi and thanks for a great podcast. I'm catching up on older episodes right now, very much enjoying them. And I let him know that if it wasn't for listeners letting me know they appreciate the show, I probably would have packed it in a, a while ago. Um, and he followed up with, it's kind of funny, he says, Seems odd to me as a Brit seeing what we think of as a massively religious country like the U.S. having the lion's share of great podcasts. I feel I'm getting to know your country better than mine at times. Do us all a favor and keep going. And I replied back something to the effect that, uh, but in fairness, you gave us uh, you know, some of the best non-believers. Um, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, one of my favorite people of all time, one of my favorite authors, thinkers, speakers. Another one of my favorite people, Richard Dawkins, of course. But that is interesting, though. I've heard a number of um, English people talk about how um, how they're kind of taken aback by how religious as a whole America uh, seems to be and that they're often surprised to see um, or hear all these uh, atheist voices or um, secular or, or skeptical voices coming out of the U.S. And to me, it just seems like the norm. You know, I've been, uh, I was raised religious uh I've been dealing with uh, religious people my whole life. Um, so battling that kind of level of religiosity and uh, being surrounded by literal belief and whatnot, um, it, it just seems like the status quo to me. But anyway, uh, I'd like to thank Russ again just for uh, sending me that message and letting me know he's enjoying the podcast. And if any of you guys would like to reach out and give me feedback on the show, um, you know, let me know if you like it. Let me know if you think there's ways I could improve it. Um, just get in touch, you know, via the Facebook page like Russ did, or get in touch via Twitter. And I also have the Gmail account theweekendout at gmail.com. I have to admit, I don't look at that often because it's linked to uh, the Weekend Out YouTube channel. So every time someone leaves a reply to one of the Weekend Out YouTube videos, I get alerted uh, via that email account. And it's usually just people fighting back and forth over um, 
an excerpt from a Bill Maher video or something that I uploaded. But I should probably be more diligent and make sure there isn't any um, listener mail in there as well. And there's an iTunes review I wanted to read as well. And to be honest, um, I kind of feel like I may have already read this one on the air at some point. But just in case, I'll read it again. And it's by Nicholas Jensen. Excellent podcast. Phil's a sincere, real dude who is not interested in promoting an agenda or proving anyone wrong. Great insights, great facts. They are swiftly corrected when misstated. Overall, fantastic show. Please keep up the good work. And um, I just kind of pause for a minute because it really affects me when you guys get in touch like that. And the praise means a lot because I can remember when I first decided to embark on this journey with the podcast. And uh, as a somewhat sensitive person, you know, the older I get, the more my skin kind of thickens, uh, figuratively speaking. I think technically human skin actually thins as you get older. But um, anyway, one of my biggest fears was that, you know, people would just rip me apart. No one would like the show. No one would listen. And uh, the podcast has been received very warmly. And I want to thank all you guys for listening. I want to thank everyone who's ever reached out and encouraged me and let me know how how they enjoy the show. And Nicholas mentions how mistakes are swiftly corrected. And I like to think so. One of my biggest fears is that maybe there's some that have slipped by that I never corrected. But when I do become aware of a mistake, I have almost this neurotic obsession with, uh, correcting it as soon as possible. Maybe it's an overactive conscience or whatever, but I don't want the dissemination of, of, of uh, misinformation on my conscience. Um, the whole point of the show is to try to shine a light on things like religious hypocrisy, superstition, and as corny as it sounds, to me at least, the show's about the search for the truth. One of the reasons why I'm a non-believer is because I hunger for the actual truth. I don't want to be placated with myths. I want to try to find out what the the actual truth is. Um, I approach the search for truth with an almost, uh, no pun intended, religious zeal. In, in a weird way, that's kind of my religion. Um, I don't want, as I said, I don't want to be placated with myths. I don't want to live with my head in the sand. I don't think it's noble to uh, have faith in what can't be proven um, just because it gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling or whatnot. I think it's noble to search for the truth. So the last thing I want to do is be responsible for putting bad information out there. And then to reiterate, that's why I try to correct myself as quickly as possible. Plus, I think it's the right thing to do. Well, here's the part where I sound perhaps less than noble, uh, perhaps somewhat vain. Uh, Well, I was looking at iTunes to see if there were any new reviews. I noticed that my rating had gone from four and a half stars out of five down to four and a quarter stars out of five. 
I had this little George Costanza moment where I was like obsessing on it. And I just imagined all those little stars continuing to go down. <laughs> so perhaps either I offended a religious listener or it could have been a fellow non-believer. And they just didn't think that the uh, podcast was up to snuff. But someone must have given me a negative review. Uh, so as as vain as it probably sounds, I was going to ask you guys uh, if at least a couple of you guys could give me a positive review. Uh, you don't even have to write anything. You could just do one of the deals where you click on the stars. Um, and I don't want anyone to do something that's insincere or that they're not comfortable with. Only give me a positive review if you think I deserve it. Uh, if you think I deserve a negative review, that's all right, too. It'll sting, but I'd rather have you do that than uh, than lie. Um, but I imagine if you dislike the podcast, you're not going to go out of your way to give me a positive review. Uh, but if some of you guys would be kind enough to even just click on the stars and, and give me a, uh, a decent... Um, rating if you think I deserve it that would be awesome can't believe it's about 13 minutes into the episode and I'm still uh, yapping on about iTunes ratings etc uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about actually has nothing to do with religion it has to do with uh, podcasting actually or podcasts in general I recently read an online story that kind of disturbed me and for those of you out there who, like myself, are podcast junkies, um, and maybe that's an apt description, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, most likely you're listening to other ones as well, I, I might be a little late to the party with this one. Maybe you guys are already aware. But supposedly, Adam Carolla is being sued by a quote-unquote patent troll, and I'm not sure if you guys like Adam Carolla or not. I used to listen to him. Uh, a lot, and, and over time I just uh, fell out of the habit. And once in a while, um, even though I'm not conservative, you know, I try to get my news from all different sources, once in a while I'll tune in to Fox News, uh, maybe just to uh, challenge my sanity, and I'll see Adam Carolla on the Bill O'Reilly show, or the O'Reilly Factor, and it's so bizarre. I feel like I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole every time I see Adam Carolla uh being interviewed by Bill O'Reilly. But anyway, um, whether or not you like uh, Adam, um, I'm on a first-name basis, yeah. Uh, he's being sued by this patent troll, and the same patent troll has supposedly gone after other big names. I think possibly Mark Marin, but I I'm not sure. Maybe uh, I'm mistaken, and Adam Carolla was talking with Mark Marin to try to bring uh, attention to it. I'm not sure. But I think uh, the same troll may have uh, targeted Chris Hardwick, too. Like a lot of people, I'm a Walking Dead fan, and Chris Hardwick hosts the uh, Talking Dead, that kind of commentary show that comes on right after The Walking Dead. Um, and you guys are probably savvy enough that you already know what a patent troll is, but just in case, it's basically someone that doesn't produce any work or product themselves, but they kind of go around filing patents and then trying to uh, sue others for infringement. 
And the company behind this is called uh, Personal Audio. And I guess the deal is that they're trying to sue Adam Carolla for like three million bucks. Uh, And like I said, they targeted some other big names too because they claim they own the right to podcasting, basically. And people online have been quick to point out that they claimed this patent in like 2009. And obviously podcasting has been around since at least 2004 or something like that. And supposedly what they did, and I've been kind of learning a lot just by researching this, they call it a child or submarine patent. It's when you try to piggyback a new patent onto an older one. So supposedly they have some kind of weird patent that goes back to like 1996 that might have something to do with audio cassettes or something like that. And they filed this new patent that has to do with, uh, I forget the exact language, something to do with the publishing of of content in an episodic or serialized format or something like that. Uh, So now they're trying to say that they have, they basically own the rights to podcasting and they're trying to go after the, um, the really big names in podcasting and shake them down for money. And I guess the same company in the past has actually successfully sued Apple, um, by claiming that they own the patent on playlists, or the concept of playlists. And obviously, you know, to the average person, it just sounds crazy. It sounds crazy to me. Say something like podcasting. They say they own the rights to serialized content uh, disseminated over the web or something like that. Um, it's such a basic concept, serialized content. I mean... Charles Dickens released some of his novels in a serial format. <laughs> yeah, um, since the inception of television, television shows have been in a serialized format. Comic books, I mean, you name it. It's just so ridiculous. Um, and something like playlists. You know, since radio's been around, people have been, uh, you know, DJs have been creating playlists. Um Back in the days of uh, audio cassettes, people were making mixtapes, you know, which are essentially playlists. So the idea that someone could claim a patent on something that's so basic and so prevalent and then go around and try to sue people, it it disgusts me. And they were saying that it, it could really pose a danger to podcasting in general. Because if these guys are successful in suing the big names in podcasting, it could result in podcasting no longer being free because everyone will have to pay kickbacks to this company and uh, perhaps others like them. And then in turn, to try to make it worthwhile, podcasters would probably have to try to uh, charge their listeners money. So this thing, as asinine as it sounds, could um, end up proving a threat to podcasting in general. And it's so disheartening, it's so offensive, it's so absurd. 
And what I love about podcasts, and it's probably what you love about podcasts and the internet in general, is that there's this medium for this easy, free exchange of ideas. Our voices can all be heard. And uh, that's the great thing about podcasting. You know, like, my star of the show, at first I was writing a book. I wanted to write a book that pretty much distilled or condensed all of my thoughts on things like religion and uh, as corny as it might sound, our kind of, our mutual existential plight or whatnot. Just my thoughts on life, my thoughts on religion, uh, my thoughts on why I think religion's a man-made, why I doubt things like the existence of a creator and an afterlife. Um, and all of a sudden, like a light bulb went off. I said, if I did a podcast, I was a podcast junkie. I was thinking to myself, I could get my voice and my ideas out there immediately. Um, but now the idea that someone with a get-rich-quick scheme could kind of throw a monkey wrench in that for everyone. Um, yeah, well, I, I know it has nothing to do with religion, but I just want to make you guys aware of it. But speaking of podcasts, I remember last week I said how I wanted to start a kind of new tradition or feature on the show where I recommend something to you guys each week. Something that has nothing to do with sponsors or anything like that. It's just something that I really enjoy or that I got something out of and, and I think you might too. And last week I recommended the documentary series From Jesus to Christ. Um, and this week, and this brings me into a whole <laughs> new controversy, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar, you probably are, uh, it's one of the biggest podcasts out there probably, um, Skeptoid with, uh, Brian Dunning, um, I wanted to recommend an episode of Skeptoid, because I recently went back and started listening to some early episodes of, uh, Skeptoid that I had missed, um, and I believe it was Skeptoid number 168, and I think it was entitled Decrypting the Mormon Book of Abraham. And, um, and anyway, what makes this all controversial is uh, the host of Skeptoid, Brian Dunning, uh, and it kind of sent minor shockwaves through the kind of skeptical or skeptic community. He actually got into some legal trouble. Uh, if I can give you my background concerning uh, Skeptoid, I went back to school for graphic design some years ago, and despite the fact that I've always been a music junkie, I was actually kind of late to the whole uh, iPod, MP3 thing. Um, and I remember I started going back to school for graphic design, and the computer labs they had us work in were... All, all Macs, just Macs. So I had to learn how to use a Mac. And around the same time, my sister had got her first iPod. It was the first iPod I had ever seen. And I think it might have been like a third gen uh, Nano or something. It was back at the time when the Nano still had a click wheel. And I remember it just blew my mind seeing this whole music library on this tiny little device you could put in your uh, in the palm of your hand so 
I ended up getting an iPod. And between getting an iPod and learning graphic design on a Mac, all of a sudden I became an Apple junkie. I became a podcast junkie. And Skeptoid was one of the very first podcasts I ever downloaded. Uh, it was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. And I still listen to it to this day. And what I really liked about the show was unlike this long-winded podcast, Brian Dunning will keep the episodes down to like 10 or 12 minutes. And in that time, he does a great job of giving you a short, concise, yet thorough and intelligent take on a subject. And he'll basically take something, it could be Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, it could be uh, some kind of miracle claim, uh, it could be chemtrails, reptoids, whatever, and he'll try to debunk it within that short amount of time. And he usually does a really good job. And I don't know if I really look up to anyone, but if I maybe uh, that's the wrong phrase, but for lack of a better term, I kind of felt like I looked up to Brian Dunning because not only did I see someone who was really intellectually honest and did his best to shed the light of reason on superstition and on uh, supernatural claims, etc., but he seemed like a guy who was just a really good guy, an honest guy, who cared about doing the right thing and who cared about getting the truth out there. So I can remember when, I think it was during an episode of C-Web Sunday School that I appeared on along with another atheist or uh, secular podcast host, and we were all kind of shooting the shit. Uh Uh-oh, explicit tag. And uh, Brian Dunning came up and uh, the... uh, subject of uh, Skeptoid came up. And I learned from one of the other guys about the legal trouble he'd gotten into. And I'll try not to focus on it too much because I want to make this about why I've chosen to still listen to Skeptoid and uh, still follow Brian Dunning. I don't want to make this about kind of uh, piling on him. But uh, just to put things in context, uh, Brian Dunning was actually originally an IT guy. I guess he's pretty good at what he does in that field. And supposedly he and some others had exploited some kind of referral software. Uh, You know how, how like a lot of websites will do, like if you, they'll have an Amazon link and if you click on the Amazon link, and actually buy something, you know, through, you know, going to Amazon through their site, uh, they get a kickback. Well, something similar with eBay, where Brian Dunning uh, and some other people uh, he was associated with had a setup where, you know, ideally, the way it's supposed to work, you click on an eBay link through his site or something, and, and then he gets a kickback if you go to eBay and buy something or whatever. But they found a way to do some kind of cookie stuffing thing. And that's like a funny phrase, cookie stuffing. Um, But so that the cookie stayed on your computer so that if you went to eBay, even if it wasn't through Brian Dunning's site, it would still read as if you had just come from his site. So 
he and his associates, I think it was his brother and some other guy, were raking in money hand over fist. And I think it, I forget the exact figure, but it was in the millions. I mean, they made a lot of money off of this scheme and eventually the feds caught up with them. So when people found this out, you know, like, like I said, it sent, you know, shockwaves, so to speak, through the skeptic community. And I know, like, figuratively, my jaw dropped when I heard it. And it was probably the first time in a while that I really felt disappointed or let down, almost like maybe you would by learning something bad about a hero figure when you were a kid or something like that. Um, and I think it's just another life lesson about how maybe no matter how good or honorable someone seems, you know, even the best of us can be flawed in, in, in some way. Or, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to try and make excuses for it either. I mean, he did it. You know, he did it and he got caught. Um, but, you know, I was left as a fan trying to wrap my head around and try to reconcile how can this guy that seems to care so much about the search for the truth and intellectual honesty have done something like this and I guess maybe I'm just speculating it's compartmentalization to some degree I still get the feeling that Brian Dunning cares about uh debunking pseudoscience and uh and the like um, I don't think he would have started Skeptoid if he didn't care. I don't think he would research his episodes the way he does if he didn't care. Um, so that's why I think it's got to be some kind of weird compartmentalization. You know, someone in one way can be a decent person, then in another way they can be flawed and even be criminal to an extent or be willing to um, resort to uh, criminal behavior. It kind of reminds me of like Bill Clinton. Yeah, I'm, I, I consider myself an independent who leans left on social issues and there's things I admire about Bill Clinton, like his uh, charity work, etc. But, and I'm, I'm really far from a sexual Puritan. I'm probably closer to the libertine side. Um, but I can remember being a kid and... I can remember like Gary Hart and other politicians who were running for office. There would be one sex scandal. Forget it, buddy. You're done. Kiss your political career. Goodbye. And I can remember being a kid, probably like a teenager or whatever, and seeing Bill Clinton survive like two sex scandals before he was even elected to office. You know, there was like the Jennifer Flowers, I forget the other girl's name, uh, scandals, and this was before he was even elected president. And I remember thinking to myself as a kid, I'm like, how's he getting away with this? Because I remember, even though I didn't care about politics, as a kid, seeing other politicians go up in flames for similar things. Then I remember he got elected to the office, and obviously we all know about the, Lama the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal, and... Like I said, I, I'm not puritanical when it comes to sex, but there did seem something odd about the person holding the highest office in the country, uh, messing around with a girl who was probably young enough to be his daughter uh, in the Oval Office and then lying about it to the American people. Um, it, it just it seemed very... 
there was something about it that didn't sit right with me, even as a young kid who didn't care about politics, especially. And, uh, and so to this day, I look at like Bill Clinton and his weird sex scandals and stuff. And, and it makes me, you know, question who he is as a person. But on the other hand, then you see the, the way he sometimes fights for progressive, uh, causes, uh, his charitable work and stuff like that. So once again, maybe it's compartmentalization, like, and, and also, you know, we know the way that people idolize JFK in this country. And then, you know, all the CD stuff came out over the years about, um, his bizarre sexcapades while in office and everything. So, um, and generally speaking, like I, I don't have any, re- obviously I don't have any religious hangups uh, about sex being a non-believer. Um, but I still think you know, you should try to conduct yourself with a certain amount of honor or respect for others. And there seems something odd about, you know, being a married person and uh, holding a, a respected uh, office and, you know, basically cheating on your wife. And especially there's something to me, too, because a lot of, both, with both G- JFK and Bill Clinton, it involved girls who were legal adults, but who were still young. And it just smacked of someone using their power, you know, like a married man using his power for sexual favors. Um, but I guess the point I'm getting at, it seems weird. I'm kind of comparing Brian Dunning to uh, politicians, but maybe, uh, one of the lessons I'm learning as I get older is that sometimes, uh, things aren't as, black and white as we would like them to be and people who we admire might not be completely good um that being said i think we should we should strive to all should strive to be as good as as we can be um but it is weird when someone you admire does something so brazen and so wrong where uh some people might try to make the excuse that, oh, eBay is this huge, you know, billion-dollar company or whatever. Um, they're not going to miss these millions that, uh, you know, Brian Dunning took. But we know it's wrong. You know, you hear it, you know it's wrong. It's wrong. Um, but and so I had to kind of wrestle with this. But I said to myself, I still enjoy his podcast. And I still think he cares about debunking pseudoscience and... Uh, trying to uh, spread uh, the gospel <laughs> of critical thinking or whatever, you know. Um, I'll never probably quite look at him the same, but I'm not going to completely turn my back on him or give up on Skeptoid either. And I've heard other, um, you know, skeptics or atheists or whatever online talk about how, you know, kind of bash him and say, oh, well, there's been multiple times that, it, you know, it's been proven that he got his facts wrong or something. It's like, maybe so. Um, All of us are wrong sometimes. There's been plenty of times I've had to correct myself on the show. And I think the kind of mark of the man is, are you willing to kind of humble yourself and admit you are wrong? And anyone who's listened to Skeptoid knows that Brian Dunning regularly does kind of house cleaning episodes where, you know, either he either answers listener feedback or he goes down a list of corrections he needs to make. Um, and, and I still think there's some kind of compartmentalization going on. I think in regards to his podcast, he, he's a pretty uh, 
honest and ethical guy and cares about trying to get the right information out there and corrects himself when he uh, messes up. Uh, <laughs> but in other areas of his life, uh, that IT stuff, man, I don't know. But I'm, I'm going to keep on listening to him. But anyway, the, so because all this was in my head, uh, I went back and I realized that I could click on feed in iTunes and I could see past episodes, uh, episodes that were released before I even started getting into uh, Skeptoid, you know, going some years back now. And I found that episode um, about the uh, Mormon Book of Abraham. Like I said, I think it was episode 168. It's probably like 10 or 12 minutes uh, long. Um, but I had uh, done further reading after I listened to the episode. It seemed to me like Dunning got all of his uh, ducks in a row that he got things right. Um, and it shouldn't surprise any of us who already know something about the questionable history of uh, Mormonism that supposedly Joseph Smith bought some Egyptian papyri and um, claimed that he was able to translate them, similarly to how he claimed he translated the golden plates that contained the uh, Book of Mormon. And so he translated the, these Egyptian papyri, and uh, I believe papyri is the plural of uh, papyrus, right? Uh, but anyway, and he, and he said that they contained... Uh, what's known as the Book of Abraham, another sacred text in uh, Mormonism. And, um, but it turns out that actual archaeologists who've, you know, studied these uh, papyri uh, or whatever uh, have discovered that um, they're pretty much run-of-the-mill burial papyri. Uh, I forget the exact name. It might be like... I remember what it was now. Hypocephalus. Almost sounds like a disease. But uh, it's called a hypocephalus because it's this kind of round papyrus that's meant to go under the head of the dead. And it contains um, bits of Egyptian religious text about the, uh, about the afterlife. And it has... Um, Egyptian hieroglyphs with the animal-headed characters, etc. But Joseph Smith said that one of these, or more than one of them, because uh, supposedly he purchased papyri, not just one papyrus, um, he claimed were written by the hand of Abraham himself. And Egyptologists have seen these things, and like I said, they're run-of-the-mill run uh, Egyptian papyri with standard... Um, hieroglyphics about um, about the afterlife. Uh, so basically, it is what it seems. Joseph Smith got a, his hands on a bunch of Egyptian papyri and, uh, and claimed he translated them and that there was a Mormon text written on them, which is obviously absurd. And I think he also had someone copy the illustrations too. So there's these bizarre, like Mormon, there's these Mormon images that are supposed to have to do with Mormon cosmology, etc., which are basically directly lifted or take on Egyptian hieroglyphics, and it is just whacked out. So, I mean, when you think about it, you have this uh, 19th century character Joseph Smith who claims that an angel led him, led him to some 
golden plates in upstate New New York. That and this ties into Egypt again. He claims that on the golden plates were words written in what uh, I believe he referred to as uh, reformed Egyptian, a language a language which Egyptologists say doesn't even exist. And then there's all the crazy claims about how uh, American Indians are, were you know originally came from Israel, etc. Um, when we know that um, indigenous American peoples supposedly came from Asia um, via land bridge across the Bering Strait, um, so it's just it, it's just complete horseshit in there. I I just have to say it in there. I I swore again. Um, so to me, two of my favorite cultures, Native American culture and ancient Egyptian culture, to me, it's like he insults and bastardizes both of them. But that episode 168 of Skeptoid, uh, was all about, uh, the debunking of the, uh, Mormon book of Abraham. If you want to check that out, episode 168, and I'll leave it up to you guys to decide for yourselves, uh, what you think of Brian Dunning and whether you, you still wish to uh, follow his podcast. I am going to continue listening to Skeptoid. Uh, it was, you know, one of the first uh, podcasts I ever listened to. And um, I, I still think that it's a uh, good podcast that does a lot to promote critical thinking. And it, it's a shame, you know, what happened with the, uh, that whole scandal, but you know, there it is, man. There it is. Um, but what else did I want to talk about? Oh yeah. I wanted to cover a news story. Um, supposedly the Pope doesn't like dope and, uh, I'll read a bit of a story from the Huffington post about the, the Pope denouncing, uh, the legalization of marijuana. And I was going to give a credit to the author, but I don't see the author listed here, but, uh, Oh, it looks like, um, the Huff Post is getting it from the AP, and I'm getting it from them. Blah blah blah, but it's uh, here's the title: Pope Francis denounces the legalization of recreational drugs. Uh, Vatican City AP: Pope Francis has come out strongly against the legalization of recreational drugs, lending his voice to the debate which is raging from the U.S. to Uruguay and beyond. Francis told members of a drug enforcement conference meeting in Rome on Friday that even limited attempts to legalize recre recreational drugs are not only highly questionable from a legislative standpoint, but they fail to produce the desired effects. Francis has frequently railed against the evil of drug addiction and has met with addicts on several occasions. Just last month, Uruguay, next door to Francis, native Argentina, approved selling marijuana cigarettes in pharmacies, and recreational marijuana is legal in the U.S. states of Colorado and Washington. Um, well, I couldn't disagree more with the Pope. Well, I, I do agree with him on the problem of drug addiction. Um, you know, there's some people out there, there's like extreme libertarians who think that all drugs should be legalized, and that'll answer the problem with the war on drugs, etc. Um, I'm kind of more moderate than that. I think there's a spectrum, there's a sliding scale about how you know potent or dangerous certain drugs are. Um, but there's prescription drugs that are extremely dangerous. You know, now we're hearing a lot in the or you know extremely addictive. Now we're hearing a lot in the news uh, right here. In uh, I'm in Massachusetts and in the city of Boston, 
um, there's a there's this kind of plague in Boston and in some of the surrounding cities where people who aren't stereotypical junkies or druggies, whatever pejorative uh, term you, you choose or prefer, um, people of all age groups from all walks of life who got hooked on prescription painkillers that were legitimately prescribed in the beginning um, find themselves where either they can no longer get the prescription filled because maybe the original uh, ailment or injury is passed or whatever, but now they're hooked. They're hooked on this kind of um, opiate high, and so they then go from the prescription drugs like Oxycontin or whatever it is to heroin. So there's this whole new epidemic of heroin addiction that's going on in the uh, Boston area. Um, and so there's drugs like heroin, drugs like cocaine. You know, cocaine's another drug where, um, you know, I, I can remember growing up and hear, hearing stories about like healthy young NBA players that maybe experimented once with cocaine. And maybe, you know, they had some congenital heart problem they weren't even aware of. And they end up just dropping dead on the court or whatever. Or you hear about people who get addicted to cocaine and basically they end up with the inside of their noses rotted out. You know, the excessive cocaine use leads to basically uh, a rotted septum or whatever. Um, so there's certain drugs that I think are really dangerous and I would pause before thinking about legalizing them but pot i think uh, in fairness to the pope it doesn't sound like he's necessarily speaking out against medical marijuana i don't know what his opinion is on that but at least medical marijuana i i don't even know how anyone could question medical marijuana of course we know there's people who kind of game the system there's people who probably don't need medical marijuana who get the cards nevertheless but we know that cancer patients, and I know there's certain like pediatric illnesses, et cetera, that um, it's shown that uh, THC can can benefit the, the sufferers or whatever. Yeah, we know that pain management or, or managing nausea for cancer patients. And I, I think it was Sanjay Gupta who talked about it. Um, but it wouldn't even be getting high. But the, the some pediatric illness that they found that components of marijuana, THC, certain strange of certain strains of THC could be used to um, really benefit children suffer, suffering with certain illnesses. So I don't even know anyone could you know uh, have a problem with medicinal marijuana, but even recreational marijuana. You know, in my own life, I have family members who are addicted to regular tobacco cigarettes and, and I see how addicting those can be. I, I see the harm it can inflict on people, the sense of guilt because they can't get themselves to quit, the toll it takes on their lungs, etc. Um, and to me, I've always been like, well, at least pot gets you high, man. And I don't, I've heard kind of competing or uh, contradictory studies about, you know, how pot stacks up to tobacco in regards to the toll it takes on your lungs. But we know but we know there's other ways to consume pot other than smoking it. There's edibles and uh, I don't want to get anyone into trouble, but I was at a party not long ago. Some of my friends are a little younger than me. So there's this whole new fad I had never heard of before. Uh, 
something called dabbing, and it involves a form of THC known as wax. That is all I shall say. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, so I think pot as a recreational drug, I mean, I, I've actually never been crazy about pot. I actually prefer good old liquor, uh, the brown spirits like uh, rum, whiskey, etc., and occasionally a girly drink. Um, yes, back in the day, I was the guy who drank wine coolers sometimes. <laughs> or uh, even now, I'll drink like Mike's Hard Lemonade and stuff like that. It's because I have a sweet tooth. But my favorite drinks are probably like Jack and Coke, rum and Coke. Um, but I have to admit, I think alcohol is probably more dangerous than pot. I mean, if, if there's a substance that's relatively benign, and people enjoy it, and not to mention that may have medical benefits too. I mean, what the hell, man? Legalize it. Um, and I kind of have a similar opinion with uh, psychedelics too. Despite the fact that I'm a non-believer, uh, I do have this kind of fascination with altered states of consciousness and uh, the idea of using things like psilocybin mushrooms or lysergic acid or DMT to kind of alter consciousness and kind of explore your, um, your own inner landscape or explore your own or, or alter your own perception or consciousness or whatever. Um, but I should offer the caveat that obviously, you know, things like ecstasy, uh, which I think can be a beneficial drug. And at some point it was actually used in therapy and they're thinking of it again. You have to be careful with any drug and you have to weigh the pros and cons. You know, they think that ecstasy can have a long-term effect on mood because um, similar to an antidepressant or certain antidepressants, uh, ecstasy potentiates um, the release of serotonin or, or the activation of serotonin in your brain. And supposedly it can cause so much serotonin to be released from a, um, from a uh, receptor um, that it can actually cause that serotonin receptor to kind of atrophy or shrivel because it releases so much serotonin. It's as, it's as if it thinks it's no longer of any use. Um, and obviously that can throw your uh, serotonin levels uh, or your neurotransmitter levels off and it can supposedly lead to things like uh, mood disorders and, and stuff down the road. I've also heard of ecstasy leading to uh, symptoms that mimic uh, symptoms of Parkinson's and stuff like that. And, uh, and even if you're going to take a powerful psychedelic or something like that for your own safety and the safety of others, you want to make sure you know what you're doing and you want to make sure what context you're using it in. But uh, here I am kind of waxing philosophical about drugs, but I think, um, yeah, but I think pot, I, I, I won't try to make any more excuses or give you my reasons. I'll just say I'm for legalizing pot. And even, well, I'll say this, as someone who comes from a family that has a history of mental illness. I don't want to out any particular uh, individuals, you know, uh, without their consent or whatever. But I, I have heard uh, that supposedly one of the downsides of pot is that if you're genetically predisposed to things like schizophrenia, it supposedly, uh, according to certain studies, can um, kind of ex exacerbate or awaken uh, those tendencies or whatever. So that's something people should be aware of too. But obviously things like uh, caffeine and uh, alcohol, um, just about any 
uh, drug that can alter consciousness or whatever, uh, you know, can, can have a uh, downside. And it's about weighing the pros and the cons. But I think at the end of the day, pot's a benign enough drug that, um, that I think it should be legalized. And there was uh, and there was one other story I wanted to do. This one's kind of funny. Um, and this is from Time, and it's entitled... Christian heavy metal band frontman admits he's actually an atheist. And that's such a great title, right? Well, the good news, kind of cool for us that a Christian uh, rock guy comes out and admits he's actually an atheist and maybe it was just, you know, a money-making scheme. Um, the bad news, <laughs> not, only, not only is he an atheist, you know, which is cool, but he's also... Um, a would-be murderer, wife murderer, which is obviously not cool. But I'll read a bit from the article. If you grew up Christian or just really emo, you might remember the band As I Lay Dying from your teenage years. They mixed heavy metal instrumentation and angsty lyrics with a tinge of religion. But it turns out that was something of a lie. The band's frontman, Tim Lambesis or Lambesis just admitted that he has been an atheist for years and he wasn't the only band member to drop out of their creed. This confession wasn't the first time Lambesis betrayed his fans, however. He was also recently arrested for hiring an undercover detective to kill his soon-be former wife. He was angry that she had restricted visits with their children and would get a share of his income in the divorce. His wife, Megan, has filed a $2 million lawsuit against him. Uh, she obviously isn't suing him as the least she should do. But, uh, let's see. Lambesis says he was the third guy who became an atheist in the band, a fact that had come to light in the couple's divorce papers. In the process of trying to defend my faith, I started thinking the other point of view was the stronger one, he said, in an interview with the Alternative Press. In 12 years of touring with As I Lay Dying, I would maybe one in... I would say maybe one in ten Christian bands we toured with were actually Christian bands. The singer has been sentenced to six years in jail, but the band's near future probably isn't a good bet either. That was kind of an oddly worded uh, sentence. But, so like I said, kind of bittersweet on the one side. Yeah, kind of cool. Uh, Christian metal singer admits he's an atheist. Downside, he also tried to kill his wife. Okay. About that being said, uh, I'll let you mull that one over. I'll call this episode quits. Uh, thank you for listening. Hopefully I wasn't too long-winded this time around. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. You can review the show on iTunes. It would be cool if you did that, because I want my crummy quarter star back. Um, and uh, uh, the show's also available on Stitcher. You can go to Podbean and check out the archives and latest episodes. Uh, while you're there, if you feel generous, you can donate to the show's upkeep. And I keep meaning to say, for those of you, I think there's three people who have already donated to the show's uh, upkeep. Um, was it Atheus? Atheus or Atheus? Uh, I think it was, or was it Crocoduck? Uh, I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but I, I still crack up when I think about how one of you guys donated uh, 666 cents. And there were uh, two other people who donated as well. But uh, for the three of you guys who donated, I, I don't want you guys to feel guilty or hear me talking about donating via PayPal and be like, dude, we already gave you money. For the three, you three guys who donated, um, you guys have already done more than enough, so don't think I'm talking to you. 
And I think it was, who else was it? Um, Emily, I think, donated 99 cents and PayPal took their cut from it. And, uh, oh, John Haas was the other one. John Haas donated too. All right. So, uh, yeah, thanks you guys. And don't think I'm nagging you. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I think you can also donate to the show on like, like one buck a month or something like that via Patreon. It's like patreon.com slash the weekend out. Uh, but anyway, now I'm done with that televangelist money grubbing thing. I'll say, uh, peace out and until next week. <laughs>